this episode we are continuing the book Precious Time by Erica James. The forthcoming marriage between Gabriel and Clara is off. Of course it was only suggested as a way to wind up Gabriel's elder son Caspar, who had decided Clara was a gold digger after his inheritance. Clara has been reading Val's diaries and is now intrigued by the divisions in the lives of Gabriel and his three children. But should she be reading private diaries and where will her curiosity take her? Let's find out. Chapter 32 In bed that night, long after Ned had fallen asleep, Clara was reading the diaries. As she turned the pages in the soft beam of light, she was conscious that while she might refer to the diaries as borrowed, she was actually stealing the private thoughts of a woman who, if she were alive, would have every right to be furious at Clara's intrusion into her honest record of her own failings, as well as the shortcomings of others. Clara knew from what she had read that Val had been a fair woman. She had tried hard to see a difficult situation from every angle. Yet there were times when Clara got annoyed with Val's understanding. She longed to shout, Stop making excuses for them all! The tricks that had been played on her by Casper and his sister were breathtakingly diabolical. And as their father had turned a blind eye to what was going on, he was no better than his scheming brats. The first diary began a month after Val, in her own words, had taken on the job of nanny and housekeeper at Mermaid House. This bleak description of herself, so soon into her marriage, seemed to have been prompted by a case of good intentions on her part that had gone disastrously wrong. I cannot believe what happened today. I'm still shaking with anger and indignation. The whole situation is so gruesomely destructive, I have to get my thoughts and shock down on paper. Hence this journal, something I haven't done in years, not since I was a child with TB and had to spend so much time in the sanatorium and thought I would die of loneliness. NB, clearly there is a connection here. We'll think about this in more detail when I've calmed down. The trouble started last week and I really could kick myself for not seeing how I was being manipulated, just like the heroine of Rebecca at the hands of Mrs Danvers. But in all truth, how was I to know? I suggested to Casper and Damson that the three of us ought to get our heads together and do something about Jonah's birthday. How do you know it's his birthday? Damson had asked, her closed face watching me slyly from behind her long curtain of hair. Why, is it a secret, darling? I replied. And yes, I do try to call the children something endearing, even if I don't mean it half the time. She didn't say anything, and I didn't think it strange that until that moment no one had mentioned the fact that Jonah's fourth birthday was just round the corner. I only found out about it by chance when I had been putting away some papers, just another example of the stuff that Gabriel is forever leaving about the house. Putting the letters and documents away in his desk, I saw a card that must have come in the post that I hadn't seen. It was from the doctor's surgery in Deaconsbridge, recommending that Jonah be brought in for his preschool booster. It was then that I saw the date of his birth. The only thought that crossed my mind at that point was that it was lucky I'd seen the card, as otherwise, and knowing Gabriel and his lack of foresight when it came to anything to do with his children, the child's birthday would probably have been and gone without any of us realising it. Still sitting at the table with Casper and Damson, 
Jonah was upstairs in bed. I asked them why neither of them had thought to tell me when their brother's birthday was. Damson shrugged and said, If you'd wanted to know, you only had to ask. There was something in her voice that made me want to snap back at her. Cold and patronising, she was treating me no better than a charlady. Restraining myself, I said, Why don't we arrange a party for him? You'd like that, wouldn't you? Help me blow up the balloons and make the jellies. I thought I was doing the right thing, involving them in something by treating them as equals, rather than tiresome children. Goodness knows how weary I am from trying to win them over, when all the time they begrudge me the very air I breathe. Eventually it was decided between Casper and Damson that we would organise a surprise party the following Saturday for Jonah, and that it would coincide with the day their father was returning from his three-week trip to Helsinki. I should have smelt a rat when Casper and Damson insisted I didn't mention what we were doing to Gabriel, but I was so caught up in my own pride and vanity that I was finally forging a link with the twins that I didn't see the warning signs. Oh, if only I had. The pair of them made the invitations, pieces of paper with a cake drawn on, rather crudely in my opinion given their age, and I wrote out the envelopes with the addresses of Jonah's little friends from his nursery school. These were duly posted, or so I thought, by Casper and Damson, who even today, after all the commotion, swore blind they'd walked to the end of the drive and handed them over to the postman. But I just know that if I were to tackle Mr Potts, he would confirm that no such thing occurred. Meantime, I had forged ahead with the shopping and baking, and last night, while the children slept, I worked like a mad thing in the banqueting hall, blowing up balloons, setting out the trestle tables, decorating them with colourful paper tablecloths, paper plates and cups. I put a tape recorder on a table in front of the fireplace so that we could have games of musical chairs and pass the parcel. And before going to bed, I iced the cake I'd made that morning, giving it the finishing touch of Happy Birthday Jonah and placing four blue candles, one at each corner. Then this morning, and on Casper and Damson's instructions, I wished Jonah a happy birthday, but kept quiet about the present we had for him. The twins had claimed that it wouldn't be fair to their father for Jonah to open it without him being there to share the moment. Again, I should have thought something was wrong when Jonah didn't pursue the matter. He just looked at the card I had given him, turned it over, and ran his fingers over the embossed picture of a little boy flying along at top speed on a bicycle. So intent was his scrutiny, it was though he had never seen anything like it before. Why, oh why, didn't I put two and two together? Why didn't I question the fact that in the run-up to his birthday, he never once referred to it? In my defence, I shall have to put it down to my ignorance of children and their mores. Jonah's quietness is also a factor. I've never come across anyone with more natural reticence. Rarely does he speak unless spoken to directly. And even then, his words are so reluctantly given, one can hardly make them out. Speak up, Gabriel yells at him. Stop muttering. But that only makes it worse, as I often tell him. Jonah needs someone in his life with a gentler manner than his father has. Some with the patience to tease out the words, to give him the confidence he so badly lacks. I can't imagine what kind of nannies these children have had in the past. The twins are practically out of control, little better than savages. In contrast, Jonah has the anxious look of somebody who's lost a shilling 
and found a sixpence. Just after breakfast, Gabriel phoned to say that his flight was going to be delayed, but he hoped to be home by three, which, unbeknown to him, meant he would miss the first hour of the party. But I wasn't deterred. At least he would be there for when it came to blowing out the candles on the cake and singing happy birthday to Jonah. By now, I was almost as excited as a small child myself, imagining the delight on Gabriel's face when he walked into the middle of his youngest son's party. But by half past three, my excitement had left me. Not one child had shown up. Poor Jonah. There he was, standing in the banqueting hall, wearing a party hat with a long feather poking out from the top that Damson had made him wear. Tearful bewilderment all over his face. Looks like no one's going to turn up, Casper said, helping himself to a cocktail sausage and flicking the stick on the floor. Jonah went over to the tables, stared hard at the plates of crisps, sandwiches and jugs of juice. There was such a look on his face. I couldn't fathom it for the life of me. And then we heard the sound of a car. It was Gabriel. The twins rushed to meet him, but Jonah came and stood next to me. If I had known better, I would have realised he was frightened. The next thing to happen was that Gabriel came marching in, knocking a bunch of balloons out of the way that was hanging over the door. What the hell's going on here? he roared. Whose idea was this? Jonah stepped behind me. Dear God, he was actually hiding from his own father. I could feel his small body shaking against my legs. It breaks my heart to say what happened next. But Gabriel continued to shout, oblivious to the harm he was doing to Jonah, and probably has been doing for these last four years. In the end, I took hold of Jonah, who looked as if he was going to be sick with fright, and carried him across the courtyard and inside the main part of the house. Gabriel followed the twins at either side of him and told me I had no right to do what I had. But why? I demanded. I was close to tears myself now. And then it all came tumbling out. Jonah's birthday was never celebrated because that was the day his mother, Gabriel's first wife, had died. So, so why didn't anybody tell me? I stammered, my stomach sinking right down to my toes, my head feeling light with shock. It's not something I care to mention, Gabriel snapped back at me. And what about Jonah? I pressed. The poor lad was still burying himself in my skirt. Doesn't he deserve better than this? I got no answer, and after Gabriel had stormed off, the twins trailing in his wake, I was left to explain to Jonah that there had been a terrible mix-up. Oh, my saints, what an understatement. Just as Jonah must have thought he was at last having his very own birthday party, it was snatched away from him. And he never said a word, just stood there holding back the tears, his chin up, his eyes blinking rapidly. I bent down and hugged him. Don't worry, darling. You'll have your party if it's the last thing I do. Silently cursing Casper and Damson's deviousness, my goodness, how that sly pair took me for a fool and manipulated me for their own pleasure. I knew that from then on I would have my work cut out bringing this family together. There was a gap of several weeks before Val took up her pen again. It seemed she had won herself and Jonah a small but important victory. From the little that she had read of the diaries, Clara decided that based on the randomness of the entries and their heated, exasperated content, Val only wrote when she needed to get something off her chest. 
It made Clara wonder if the poor woman had had any friends to whom she could turn, and if she hadn't, how awful it must have been for her to be so isolated at Mermaid House, where there was so much to contend with. Never did I think I would have to assume the role of mediating diplomat to the extent I have. An agreement has been reached. Jonah is to be allowed to celebrate his birthday, but on the condition that it's done a week after the official date. According to Gabriel, this will give the memory of his first wife the degree of respect it deserves. I know very little about the woman I have replaced, other than what her portrait in the library tells me, that she was beautiful and serene, with an edge of fun-loving determination beneath her gentle surface. To my shame, I am now desperate to listen to the snatches of gossip that come my way during my shopping trips into Deaconsbridge, as well as the snippets of information the cleaning lady let slip. Until now, I had forced myself not to dig too deeply into Gabriel's previous marriage, accepting his silence quite readily and acknowledging that the past was best left to deal with itself. But regrettably, my shield of common sense has dropped and I'm eager for the smallest of details. Also, to my shame, I'm beginning to wonder if I didn't agree to this marriage a little too hastily. Would it have been so very bad to remain alone and unmarried? Hindsight tells me I should have got to know Gabriel better before I accepted his proposal. But I suppose we both saw the convenient opportunities each could offer the other. But how will I ever manage Casper and Damson? Of course I understand that they're both hurting from losing their mother at so young and tender an age. But really, at some point in their lives, they are going to have to knuckle down and move on. But there I go again, being too hard on them. I must remember that when all is said and done, they are only children. Clara's eyelids were drooping, so she turned out the light reluctantly. But instead of falling asleep, her thoughts turned to Jonah and lunch that day, when they had been sitting at the table in the kitchen. She had watched him talking to his father as he served him a portion of tuna and pasta salad, and had realised that what she had previously condemned as his irritating, casual manner was an act. The relaxed body language was there to cover his unease. The reserve between father and son could not have been greater. And reflecting on his inability to do more than the weekly shop for his father, Clara wondered if this was the only way he felt able to help a man he was scared of. Admittedly, 24 hours ago, she would have tranced him as a wimp for not standing up to his father, but now she was seeing things differently. She saw not a grown man, but a small boy hiding behind the skirts of a woman he scarcely knew, while his father ranted at his audacity in wanting to celebrate the day he was born. And what of Gabriel Liberty? What heartbreak had he buried beneath that gruff exterior? What bitterness did he still harbour over his children's refusal to carry on the family business? The next morning, Clara woke early, made herself a cup of tea, careful not to let the kettle whistle and disturb Ned, then slipped back into bed to carry on where she'd left off last night. The diary had moved on to 1973. Tuesday, 29th August. Goodness! Gabriel left this morning on another of his big trips. It's Oslo this time, inspecting a pipeline he supplies something or other for. And I feel like I'm living in a madhouse. Last week, Casper and Damson told the vicar I'd converted the household to Catholicism, which of course I haven't, 
I merely suggested that something a little more uplifting than the low church service at St Edmund's would suit me better, to which Gabriel had snorted and called me a papist candle worshipper. Oh dear, I seem to be losing the thread here. What I was trying to say was that on top of that, Casper and Damson have now developed a morbid fascination with death and have been carrying out mock funerals with anything dead they found on the hills and moors. Added to which, they now dress up like something out of a gothic romance. I've no idea where or how they've got hold of the outfits, but they spend their days drifting about the house in black velvet cloaks. Damson spends her evenings winding her long hair up with bits of rag. A pillowcase is missing from her bed, I notice, so that in the morning she has what she thinks is an authentic hairstyle. Most suitable for 1973, I'm sure. She wears an old cotton nightdress under her cloak and seems to be modelling herself on Cathy in Wuthering Heights. Casper, complete with riding boots and a floppy white shirt, drooping cuffs, limp collar, is the latter-day Lord Byron. Oh yes, he even has an absurd hat. Yesterday they spent all day out on the moors. When I asked them what they'd been up to, they looked at me as though I had no right to ask such a question. With a vagueness that made me want to take a rolled-up newspaper to them, Casper waved a book of poetry under my nose and said, If you must know, we were reading poetry. While I applaud anyone for extending their knowledge, I can't help but think I'd prefer them to be more like other teenagers, normal teenagers. What I wouldn't do to be worried about trivial matters like damson defacing her bedroom walls with posters of pop stars and sighing from dawn till dusk with the ache of unrequited crush on some boy or other, and Casper pestering for a motorbike. I mean, that's what teenagers are about, aren't they? I wonder if it isn't a, just a little unhealthy the way Casper and Damson cling to each other. I hardly dare bring myself to write this, but every time I look at them with their arms linked, their eyes fixed on each other, I come over with the most awful feeling. Surely I'm wrong. Oh, please let me be wrong. Please let their bizarre behaviour, this exclusive need to be apart from others, to scorn the rest of the world for its ignorance, be in an adolescent phase, nothing more worrying, nothing untoward. Saturday, 18th November. Just as I thought life was beginning to settle down, the building bricks of normality, which I have been so carefully arranging, have come tumbling down on me yet again. For the fourth time in as many weeks, Jonah has run away from school. But at least now Gabriel will have to do something. He will have to get his stubborn head out of the sand and do something. Knowing that Jonah had been so unhappy makes me feel negligent and useless. For some time now, I had thought perhaps we had turned the corner with him. He was beginning to come out of his shell, talking more, well, talking more to me. The moment his brother and sister showed their faces, or his father, he clammed up. Reports from school also confirmed that he was making good progress, claiming that he was participating more actively. He had even joined in with a few clubs and was spending less time on his own. It had all sounded so encouraging as if, at long last, he was through the worst of it. But then the phone call came from school to say that he had tried to run away, but we were not to worry. He had been found by a keen-eyed teacher who had come across him hitching a lift as she drove to school. All under control, Mrs Liberty, the housemaster said. Most of the little devils try it at some time or other. His tone was oily and patronising, 
though he probably thought he was reassuring me. The third time it happened, I suggested to Gabriel that we ought to review the situation, which was a phrase Jonah's housemaster had used on the phone when he called to say that Jonah had been found sleeping in a bus shelter. Perhaps, Mrs Liberty, it's time for us all to review the situation. In response to this, Gabriel declared that Jonah was attention-seeking, that he just had to face facts. Certain things in life were damned unpleasant, but one simply had to square one's shoulders and accept one's lot. No further comment. No further comment. Honestly, I could have hit him with a frying pan. But instead of confronting Gabriel, as I know I should have done, I phoned the housemaster and demanded to know what they were doing to Jonah to cause him so much unhappiness. What kind of school are you running that you allow children in your care to sleep rough in bus shelters? I understand your concern, Mrs Liberty, but let me assure you we do the best we can. But if a pupil isn't prepared to cooperate, then frankly it's an uphill struggle and there's not a lot we can do. Cooperate? Uphill struggle? Where was the love and support these children needed? And yes, I noticed that not once in the conversation did the thoroughly irksome little man refer to Jonah as a child. He was nothing but a lump to be added to the sausage meat that would be squeezed through the machine and pushed out the other side as a supposedly mature and responsible member of society. He's not happy, I told Gabriel, when the fourth phone call came. This blatant truth was reinforced by the headmaster, we were obviously above the level of mere housemaster now, when he summoned us to school to discuss the matter. Gabriel tried to wriggle out of the appointment, but I was having none of it. You will do this one small thing, Gabriel Liberty, or you will live to regret it. It was the sternest I had ever been with him. So there we were, in the bone-chilling inner sanctum of the headmaster's study, to discuss Jonah's fate. Gabriel was still of the opinion that Jonah needed to take the rough with the smooth, but I stuck my neck out. I knew I'd never forgive myself if I didn't, and said, I've seen and heard nothing here this afternoon to convince me that this is the right environment for a sensitive boy like Jonah. Once Gabriel had got his furious throat-rattling under control, the headmaster said, I'm inclined to agree with you, Mrs Liberty, and let me tell you, rarely do I agree with parents on the issue of what they think is best for their offspring. Not enough objectivity, in my opinion. But, in Jonah's case, I wholeheartedly agree that he would benefit from a different school. Yes, I thought, as we drove home with Jonah, looking ashen-faced in the back of the car. You're washing your hands of a problem child who challenges the whole ethos of your horrible school. Gabriel can't stomach the notion that he is the father of a problem child. There's no shame involved, I told him, as he gripped the steering wheel with steam practically coming out of his ears. His face was grim and he made no response, but I saw his eyes flicker to the rearview mirror to look at his son in disgust. Poor Jonah, eight years old and the weight and guilt of the world squarely on his young, inadequate shoulders. The sound of creaking from Ned's bed above the cab had Clara snapping the diary shut and sliding it under her mattress. She waited for him to make his way down the short ladder before slipping into bed with her to claim his all-important first hug of the day. Just in time, she remembered what day it was. When he appeared at her side, she said, Oh, Ned, what's that on your nose? His hand flew to his face. What? he said, alarmed. 
April Fool, she laughed, pulling him into bed with her. She planted a huge kiss on his cheek, then blew the fruitiest of raspberries into his warm neck. As he squealed, giggled and wriggled, the strength of her love for him rose up within her, and she held him tightly, vowing never to make him unhappy as Joan and Liberty had been. And God forbid that you should ever end up with a sadistic sibling like Casper or Damson, she thought. A better person might be prepared to make allowances for people like the Liberties, because they had never truly come to terms with the death of Anastasia, who had been such a central figure in their lives. But Clara thought that nothing in the world would ever make her feel sympathetic toward Casper and his freaky-sounding twin sister. Still cuddling Ned, she despaired of Machiavellian men like Casper, vain men who revelled in their own perceived perfection, not so much running on testosterone as functioning on super-strength narcissism. She had loathed him in the supermarket, and the second viewing on Saturday night had confirmed her initial reaction. She hoped that he held the same opinion of her, and that while she was still around, he wouldn't be in any hurry to grace Mermaid House with his presence again. Chapter 33 Archie was relieved to be getting through the morning's workload faster than he'd thought they might. When they had turned up at the cottage in Castleton, the woman who had done most of the gabbing in the shop on Saturday took one look at Samson and his battleship-sized body and said, You will be careful, won't you? We've only just had the decorators in. We'll be like silk rubbing against velvet, love, Archie had reassured her. The look she gave him said she didn't appreciate being called love. No chance of a brew then, he thought, as he and Samson carried a three-seater sofa over the threshold, taking care not to scrape the twee Victorian-style wallpaper and the mahogany-stained dado rail. Now they had finished and went to settle up with Mrs Hoity-Toity. Like the good tradesmen they were, they humoured her by waiting in the hall while she wrote out the cheque in the kitchen then beat a hasty retreat back to the shop, picking up sandwiches from the bakery in town for a late lunch. Comrade Norm had been holding the fort along with Bessie, who had been doing sterling work on some boxes of crockery. Dressed in an old nylon overall, which she used to wear when she was doing the housework, she seemed happy in the little kitchen with a stack of washed plates, cups and saucers on the draining board. With slow, deliberate movements, she was drying the china carefully before arranging it on a set of cheap veneer shelves in the front of the shop. Archie pretended not to notice the broken sugar bowl in the bin, half hidden beneath an old newspaper. Lunch dealt with, he took the van and drove home to check the post. These days it never came before he left for work, but when he saw what was on the mat in the hall, he wished he hadn't bothered. It was another pompously worded letter from Stella's solicitor, wanting to know which firm of solicitors he had instructed to take care of the divorce. It was ironic that today of all days, April Fool's Day, he should receive such a communication. It was the anniversary of the day on which he had proposed to Stella, and it had been a long-standing joke between them that she had been a fool to accept. Running jump and go stick it were the words that were ready to leap from Archie's tongue after he had read through the letter. But he swallowed them knowing that he should have taken on a solicitor by now. He hadn't consciously shied away from the task, it just hadn't figured too highly on his list of jobs to do. One way or another, he never had a minute to himself now. 
Still staring at the piece of stiff grey paper in his hand, he considered whether it was worth approaching Stella directly. That way they might save a lot of hassle and expense by cutting out the middlemen. But perhaps he was being naive. In this greedy day and age, the winner took all. Except there could never be an outright winner in divorce. All there could ever be were two disappointed, wounded victims who had to live with the sad knowledge that they had let each other down. He sighed and went outside to the van. No time for such maudlin meanderings, he chided himself, not when a pretty young woman was waiting for him at Mermaid House. It had rained for most of the weekend, but today a weak sun was trying to find a crack in the thick blanket of grey cloud. It was still unseasonably cold, and Archie was glad of the heater in the van. Mermaid House was the most extraordinary place he had seen in a long while. Well, I'll be blowed, he said, when he first caught sight of it on the brow of a rise in the landscape. What a godforsaken place to live. He carried on along the bone-shaking drive in awed amazement, the empty van rattling noisily as it splashed through the muddy puddles. He pulled in beside Clara Costello's camper van and wondered how many times his modest end of terrace could fit into this vast old place. He got out and crossed the shiny wet cobbles of the courtyard, but came to a stop when he drew level with the skip. He couldn't resist having a quick shift day. After all, one man's rubbish was another's livelihood. His surreptitious foray was brought to an abrupt end by a door being flung open and a none-too-friendly voice saying, Who the hell are you and what do you think you're doing snooping through my belongings? Clara had warned Archie what to expect. Herr Liberty runs a boot camp up here on the quiet, she had told him on the phone. But take no notice of his commandant persona. He's a real sweetie when you get to know him. Archie stepped forward. Archie Merriman's the name. Miss Costello phoned me on Saturday about some odds and ends you wanted to get rid of. He was given a disdainful eyeball frisking, followed by, Ah, oh, so you're that rag and bone man she got in touch with, are you? I suppose you'd better come in. Be sure to wipe your feet. Archie did as instructed, then followed him to a large kitchen. He was allowed no further, though, and after he had been ordered to stay where he was, the cussed old man went over to an open doorway. Miss Costello, he bellowed, your disreputable rag and bone man's here. A door opened and footsteps sounded. Mr Liberty, there is no need to shout, and how many times do I have to tell you Mr Merriman runs a second-hand shop and he's the least disreputable man I know. Her voice and footsteps grew louder until finally she came into the kitchen. She was dressed in dirty jeans, a grubby t-shirt, and a cobweb decorated her dark hair. She looked younger than Archie had remembered her. The bright eyes and smile were the same though. Hello, Archie, she said. The commandant treating you as rudely as I said he would. Not so badly. How's that lad of yours? Did he find his mermaid? Oh, yes, it was here just as he said it would be. How's your mother? Everything okay with? Great Scott, how much longer have I got to put up with his incessant tea party chatter? I thought there was some business to be transacted. Clara winked at Archie and tutted. You leave the business to me, Mr Liberty. But talking of tea parties, bung the kettle on, would you? I'm sure Mr Merriman would appreciate a cup of your finest PG tips. 
Mr Liberty's nostrils flared and Archie speculated as to who was the real commandant here. He fell in step beside Clara as she led him the length of the house, the rubber soles of her shoes squeaking on the polished wooden floor. I'm afraid none of it is of any great worth, she said, but I've tried to organise everything into two piles, stuff you might be able to sell and stuff that's a little more dubious. She pushed open a heavy door and showed him into an enormous drawing room that had to be about 30 feet by 20. Stella would have loved all this, Archie thought suddenly. The grandness of the room, the high ceiling, the massive stone fireplace and the beautiful mullion windows. For years she'd been honoured him to move. We need more space, she would say, leafing through the local paper and admiring houses way out of their reach. He couldn't understand why she tormented herself looking at them. But why do we need more space, he'd argued back. There's only the two of us and this is plenty. In return, she had given him one of her standard you-don't-understand looks. Well, she'd been right on the button there. He didn't understand her need to stretch their finances just so that she could indulge in a bigger version of playing house. But this place might just about have satisfied her. It would have given her all the room she could ever have wanted. There was sufficient space here to swing a Tyrannosaurus Rex, never mind a cat. The furniture wasn't up to much, though, he reckoned. Most of it was shabby and not much better than the pieces he sold in his shop. The room was home to a hotchpotch of paraphernalia, an elephant's foot that had been turned into a stand for a tatty old Swiss cheese plant, a bamboo table with a cracked glass top, a leather hand-tooled poof with a gaping hole and stuffing oozing out of it, a Chinese silk wall hanging, a set of African drums, a lacquered chest, and a cabinet chock full of bits of jade, ivory and carved wooden animals. Souvenirs brought home by a man who had travelled, thought Archie, a little enviously. He began to look at the room more critically, seeing the cracks in the high ceilings and the gaping holes in the plasterwork above the moulded skirting boards. Why, it was nothing but a demanding bugbear and would cost a fortune to heat and keep clean. Other than Stella, who in their right mind would want to take this on? He felt his mood turning bitter and he thought again of the solicitor's letter he had to deal with when he got home that evening. For the first time since she had left him, he felt angry. Until now, he had resigned himself to what had happened. He had failed his wife, so what else could he expect? But now he felt the unfairness of Stella's actions, the sting of the implied criticism and blame, the cruel underhand way in which she had carried on her affair. Then there had been the continuous sniping at him for supposedly holding her back. I could have done so much better for myself if I hadn't married you, she had told him once. She had apologised later for that, but once said words can never be retracted. He had always thought of himself as a considerate man, who took people at face value, who didn't judge and condemn, because at the end of the day, no one is perfect. And that was why he had never confronted Stella about her affair. He had wanted to give her space to resolve whatever she was going through. But now he saw how weak he had been, and that Stella had taken advantage of him, and turned him into a fool. An April fool, for sure. Realising that Clara was waiting for him to speak, he shook himself out of his despondency. Sorry, what were you saying? I was just saying 
that if any of these things are too awful to contemplate, you must... Are you okay, Archie? You look a bit bothered. He forced himself to smile. I'm tired, that's all. Now then, let's see about this little lot, shall we? Looks to me like you've got the whole bag of tricks here. And with a supreme act of will, he focused his attention on the boxes on the floor. Without needing to sift too deeply through them, he could see that the assorted junk was mostly saleable. Pots, pans, ladles, a china toast rack in the shape of a loaf of bread, a rusting hand whisk, various discoloured and outdated kitchen gadgets, a bedside lamp and an old money box. It was the usual household stuff he saw every day. What he couldn't get rid of, he'd pass on to a fellow dealer up in New Mills, whose customers weren't so choosy as his. He reached into his trouser pocket for his roll of money. No problem, he said. I'll take the lot. Save you the trouble of messing about with any of it. Is that it? She pulled her face. I'm afraid not. I've got a load more upstairs. Oh, and I should have said the electrical items all work. I've tested them myself. He put his money away for now. I'll say this for you. You're doing a thorough job here. A little too thorough at times. Mr Liberty was lumbering in with two mugs in his hands. Having her around is akin to taking laxatives, he said to Archie, handing him a mug of tea. She sweeps you clean whether you like it or not. Thank you for sharing that delightful analogy with us, Mr Liberty, Clara smiled as she took her mug. Was there anything else? Judging from the twist to his mouth, the old boy had taken his dismissal with pleasure. Strange man, thought Archie. He sipped his tea. What on earth possessed you to take on this colossal task? He asked Clara. She laughed. A question I've been asking myself several times a day since I started. And the answer, he pressed. I'd like to say that it's down to pure altruism, but my friends would claim it's due to my perverse desire to take charge and organise everything around me. Now that's just what I could do with. Oh? Something in her tone made him want to unburden himself. The thought shocked him. Until that moment, he had never seen himself as a man who was burdened. He felt crushed. He looked at her inquiring expression and wondered if she would mind being used as a sounding board, because that was what he needed. Someone objective in whom he could confide. He hadn't turned to his friends for advice. Male pride, he supposed. That, and he didn't want the whole of Deaconsbridge knowing his business. A small town was the devil for gossip. He also hated the idea of people feeling sorry for him, viewing him differently. He'd always been good old Archie, cheerful, dependable. He knew it was irrational, but he felt as if he would let everyone down by being anything else. Go on, he urged himself. Confide in her. She's an outsider. Who would she tell? Say something, anything, because if you stand there any longer looking like a prize idiot, she'll think the lights have gone out and you're a metre short of a shilling. Staring at him over the top of her mug of tea, she said, It's none of my business, but is it something to do with your mother? Her gentle probing did away with the remnants of his resolve, and he acknowledged the dragging pain that had been with him since Stella had left him. Yes and no, he volunteered. Bessie is certainly one of my concerns, but the thing is, my wife left me recently, and I haven't a clue how to deal with it. 
I thought I was handling it, but now I'm not so sure. How recently? Just, he swallowed and hung on grimly to his self-control. Just over a week ago. Oh, Archie, I'm so sorry. She reached out and touched his arm lightly. Come and sit down. She led him across the room, avoiding the oozing poof and elephant's foot, to two high-backed armchairs in the bay of a window. It must be awful for you. Did you have any idea that this was going to happen? I'd be lying if I said it came as a surprise. Things have been difficult for a while, and what with Bessie's stroke and her moving in with us, well, let's just say I haven't helped matters. But it must have been a terrible blow. He ran a finger over the fraying fabric on the arm of his chair. I think it's only now that it's finally hitting home. I'm ashamed to say I feel angry at what she's done. And what's wrong with that? Why shouldn't you? Because, he gave the chair a light thump, a cloud of dust rose into the air. Because I'm not like that, I never get angry. Never? What an exceptional man you must be if that's true. Not exceptional, not by a long chalk. In his mind's eye, he saw his father losing his temper and lashing out at Bessie, until Archie had been big enough to step in and end the nightmare for her. What does your solicitor advise? I haven't got that far. He told her about the letter that had arrived that morning. You're probably thinking I've been stupidly slow and cowardly, aren't you? Not at all. But you have to accept that the problem isn't going to go away on its own. Have you spoken to your wife since she left? No. Do you know where she is? She's in Macclesfield with the man who... He broke off. An agonising moment passed before he managed to pull himself together. Sorry, it's just that hearing the words out loud makes it seem all the more real. I suppose that's what I've been doing this last week or so, keeping it to myself so that I don't have to face up to what I'm going to have to do. And do you know what you want to do? What choices you need to make? He smiled ruefully. Oh, I, I'm double parked on what's to be done. I'll agree to the divorce, sell the house and move into something smaller and cheaper. I'll keep second best going and somehow look after mum. That takes care of today. What about tomorrow? In spite of his flagging spirits, he laughed and felt better for it. That's just the kind of talk I need. He drained his mug. Now then, let's get back to work or your man Liberty will be after me. They both rose to their feet. Thanks, he said. Thanks a million. What for? I haven't helped you resolve anything, more's the pity. No, sweetheart, but you've listened, and maybe that was all I needed. Chapter 34 Before he had even opened his eyes, Gabriel knew the day would not be a good one. It was Friday morning, and it was Ned and Miss Costello's final day at Mermaid House. He didn't know how it had happened, but somehow during the last week he'd got so used to having them around, he was going to miss them when they were gone. A skew-eyed glance at the alarm clock on the bedside table told him it was a quarter past seven. He pushed back the bedclothes and, with a creak of springs, thumped his feet down onto the floor. He wriggled his buckled old toes, then launched himself stiffly upright. He went over to the window and gave a cautious tug at the curtains. They glided smoothly and soundlessly along the track 
and he imagined Miss Costello scolding him for not putting more faith in her ability to operate a drill and knowing which rule plugs to use. She'd even filled in the gaping holes left by the chunks of plaster that had fallen out. He stood at the window, breathing in the fresh outdoor smell of the curtains, which had been washed yesterday and left to dry in the blustery wind and sunshine. She had ironed them while they were still slightly damp and a comforting steamy warmth had filled the kitchen. While she had been doing that, he had helped Ned with the latest page of his scrapbook. A drawing of a box on wheels, supposedly a camper van, and three sloping lines of wonky writing. How do you spell diesel? the boy had asked. D-E-I-S-E-L, Gabriel had answered. D-I-E, Miss Costello had corrected him from behind a cloud of steam. Should have been a school teacher, your mother, he winked at Ned. Joan is a teacher, isn't he? Can you write diesel for me, please? A scrap of paper was pushed across the table. He must be very clever to be a teacher. You have to know everything. That's a matter for dispute. He passed the piece of paper back. Any old fool can stand up in front of a class and tell them what to do. Even I could do it. There was a snigger from the direction of the ironing board. Spelling lessons would be interesting. I'll have you know that was a mere slip of the tongue. How do you spell engine? Here, let me write it down for you before your mother gets out her stick of chalk, or worse, her cane, to beat me. Six of the best and a detention would do you the world of good, Mr Liberty. You'd have to catch me first. Ten minute head start suit you? She is a cruel, heartless woman, your mother. The boy looked up from his wobbly writing. My mummy isn't cruel. She's nice and she makes you laugh. Pah, who told you that? It's a shameless lie and one that I shall defend till the cows are blue in the face. <clears throat> Don't you mean till the cows come home? Fine English teacher you'd be with your metaphors running away with themselves. Yes, but which is more likely to happen? The cows wandering home or their faces turning blue? I think I have you there, Miss Costello. The point is mine. Still standing at his bedroom window, Gabriel sighed heavily. Life was going to be dull without them around. He washed, shaved and dressed in his pristine bathroom, put his dirty clothes tidily in the laundry basket as instructed and went downstairs. The kitchen was beautifully warm, another of Miss Costello's miracles. She had had the Argus serviced by a man who knew what he was talking about. Turned out all that had been wrong with it was a faulty thermostat. The treacherous gas heater that had burnt his arm had been banished to the gunroom. And talking of treachery, that interfering Dr Singh had been conspicuous by his absence. So much for turning up here on Monday as had been threatened. Not that Gabriel was complaining. As far as he was concerned, the less he saw of the annoying quack, the better. He put the kettle on and went to sit in one of the Windsor chairs placed in front of the Arga. This had been another of Miss Costello's reforms. By moving the table, she had created a space beside the Arga where he could comfortably warm his feet of a morning. The chairs had been brought down from one of the bedrooms upstairs and she had awarded him and Ned the job of polishing them while she tackled the unenviable task of cleaning the main bathroom. On day one of her assignment to sort out Mermaid House, Miss Costello had taken him at his word and put together a shopping list of things she considered would make his life easier. Then, the day before yesterday, she had dragged him off to the shops with the intention of making him buy these so-called labour-saving products. 
You have remembered to bring your wallet, haven't you? She said, as they drove to the other side of Deacon's Bridge in her camper van, to the retail development he had never visited before. The vast range of electrical appliances on sale in the store was bewildering. How long will this take? He asked warily, looking at the shelves of brightly coloured kettles, irons and toasters, which all seemed to resemble toys. He needn't have worried. She knew exactly what she was looking for, and, much to his admiration, badgered the spotty young assistant into giving them a 10% discount, plus free delivery for that same evening. He had watched in further admiration late that night, after she had put Ned to bed and had got down on her hands and knees and plumbed in the dishwasher. Are you deliberately trying to make me feel completely useless, he had said, passing her a spanner and wishing he was 40 years younger. Not at all. You do too good a job of it yourself. Now, let's see if this baby's going to perform. I'll put it on a quick rinse cycle. She wriggled out from under the work surface, stood up and rocked the slimline dishwasher into place. She shut the door, turned the dial with a clickety-click and pressed the start button. Water rushed through the pipes and the machine whooshed and whirred. He looked at her doubtfully. Should it make that noise? Absolutely, and trust me, it'll transform your life. You'll wonder how you ever managed without it. Shall we sort out the microwave next? What do you do for your encore? Walk on water? Give it time, Mr Liberty. Give it time. Eating his breakfast of toast and marmalade and resting the plate on his stomach as he sat by the arger, Gabriel listened to the news on the radio, or rather listened to the news on his new all-in-one, all-singing-and-dancing radio CD cassette player. It was another of Miss Costello's fine tunings. Treat yourself, Mr Liberty, she had said, or do I have to twist your arm up round your shoulder blades? The reception and sound quality were certainly better than he was used to from his old radio, but the news was still as tedious. And as from tomorrow, the highlight of his day would be answering back some jumped-up nobody who fancied himself as a political smart-ass. Clara and Ned were having their own breakfast, and as her son dipped his spoon in and out of his bowl of cocoa pops while he looked at his scrapbook spread across the narrow table, Clara had the feeling that he wasn't looking forward to moving on. He hadn't said anything, but the way he was lingering over each page... She knew that leaving Mermaid House was going to be a wrench for him. But the same was true for her. What was the old song about having become accustomed to somebody or other's face? It was from a musical. Yes, My Fair Lady, one of her mother's favourite shows. And while she hadn't fallen in love with the cranky owner of Mermaid House, she had enjoyed seeing him mellow. She'd also enjoyed keeping up the game of formality between them. Despite the shift in their relationship that had taken place, she always made a point of calling him Mr Liberty to his face, and he still referred to her as Miss Costello. But in her mind, he had become Gabriel. Not exactly archangel material, but a man with a softer side to him than he was used to exposing. It had been a week of hard slog, though. Her aching back and sore hands were proof of that. But she would leave knowing that she had spent a week doing something positive and worthwhile. She wasn't so sure of how long the benefits of her work would last. If left to his own devices, Gabriel would probably let things slide back to how they had been. But she couldn't do anything about that. Perhaps she could speak to Jonah before she left and impress upon him that his father needed a cleaner or maybe a housekeeper. But he knew that already. What would be the point? In the back of her mind, she heard Louise and the gang telling her to leave well alone. 
Stop trying to control what isn't your concern. Sound advice. Mercifully, Casper had stayed away from Mermaid House and she hadn't seen Jonah since Sunday. Apparently, he'd been away on a school history trip to northern France and Belgium. Having read some of Val's diaries, she could only marvel that any of the Liberty children had survived their childhood. She had alternated between being furious with Gabriel for ignoring the needs of his family and feeling desperately sorry for him. Clearly, the death of his first wife had left him a broken man with no one to turn to. At various times in the week, she had been tempted to ask him more about his family and the past, but the moment had never seemed right. Either Ned was around, or he and Gabriel were off on one of their adventures. During the last few days, the weather had picked up again, and while she had been busy clearing out cupboards, polishing neglected furniture, arranging with Archie to pick up yet more junk, supervising the chimney sweep and the collection of the skip, Gabriel had taken Ned down to the river to play. Yesterday they'd returned from one of their expeditions, smelling of fresh air, their faces red from the wind, announcing that they were starving. Lucky I picked up some scones and crumpets from the baker this morning, she had said, when they were kicking off their mud-caked boots and about to leave them in an untidy heap. One look from her, and they were lining them up beneath their neatly hanging jackets. But whatever Gabriel and his family had suffered in the past, it was really none of Clara's business, and she had no right to pry, just as he had had no right to interrogate Ned about his father. She winced. Where did that leave her with Val's diaries? Guiltily, she made a mental note to return them before she and Ned left. Looking at Ned as he scraped up the last of his cereal, Clara knew that her priority that day was to keep him cheerful. She didn't want him to be upset about leaving and the only trick she had up her sleeve to soften the blow for him was that once she had finished her work here today, they would be free to visit the Mermaid Cavern. At Gabriel's insistence, they were to have lunch in town at the Mermaid Cafe. It's one o'clock and I declare you officially out of contract now, he said, when she appeared in the kitchen, expecting a sandwich, or a shambly, as Ned called them. Presenting her with an envelope, he added, It's your wages. You'll find I've been more than generous. Without opening it, she slid it into her pocket. Fair enough, but I insist on driving. I'm not going anywhere in that death trap of a Land Rover. At least two of the tyres are bold, and I bet it hasn't been anywhere near a garage for years. He put up a show of resistance that got him nowhere, and after she'd changed out of her filthy work clothes, they set off. Can I have chips, please, Mummy? Ned called from his rear seat as they turned into the market square. And ketchup! It's market day, Gabriel said you might have trouble parking. Beans would be nice. Of course, if you'd let me drive my death trap, we'd be able to slip into any old space. Mmm, and lots of vinegar, please. I like vinegar. I like it when my lips go white because I've had too much. Damn, you'll have to go round again. Can we have pudding as well? There, there's the space, quick. For goodness sake, Mr Liberty, calm down. You'll give yourself a heart attack at this rate. No chance. I'm saving that pleasure for when I've over-feasted on a coronary lunchtime special. They were met by Shirley and a raised eyebrow when she saw who they had with them. We missed you last Friday, Mr Liberty, she said, handing them each a copy of the menu. Thought perhaps you'd taken your business elsewhere. You mean you hoped I had? She smiled at Clara, 
Shall I get you some drinks while you choose? Gabriel took off his cap and thwacked the table with it. You make it sound as if you're offering us something decent, like a glass of single malt whiskey. Just give my sour friend a pint of your finest malt vinegar and ignore him, said Clara. Don't worry, I always do. So, what'll it be? How about a nice strawberry milkshake? We've just had a new machine installed and I'm itching to give it a whirl. This last remark was directed at Ned, who nodded enthusiastically. It was Ned who brought up the subject of their leaving. Expertly dipping the end of a chip into the pool of ketchup on his plate, he said, Will you miss us when we've gone, Mr Liberty? Will you be sad when you're all alone again? Clara willed the old devil to say something nice, but not too nice. That depends, doesn't it, he said evasively, his eyes flickering over Clara. Why? asked Ned. If I thought I was never going to hear from you again, that might make me sad. They both looked at Clara. Expectation was etched over their faces. You could send Mr Liberty the occasional postcard, Ned, she said, thinking fast, while hiding her surprise that Gabriel had said something so refreshingly agreeable and tactful. That way he'll know what we're up to. Another chip went into the tomato sauce while Ned thought about this. But how will we know what Mr Liberty is doing? You won't, lad. No one ever knows what I'm up to, and that's the way I intend to keep it. Ned's frown showed that this wasn't the answer he wanted. Couldn't we stay a bit longer, Mummy? You could clean a bit more of Mr Liberty's house for him. Clara smiled. Mr Liberty's house is like the fourth bridge. I could go on cleaning it for ever and ever. Ned's face brightened at the possibility. He turned to Gabriel, a chip dangling from his fork. Would you like Mummy to clean your house for ever and ever? I'd like nothing better, but I suspect your mother wouldn't. Now, are you going to eat the rest of those chips or watch them grow? Over pudding, the obligatory bakewell tart and custard, Gabriel said, Do you really have to rush off, Miss Costello? We came to an arrangement a week ago. Couldn't we do something similar again? And what about the holiday Ned and I are supposed to be enjoying? I told you I'm making this trip to spend more time with my son, not spend my every waking hour cleaning for you, or anyone else for that matter. But wouldn't you agree that your son has benefited from his time at Mermaid House? She looked at him sternly, kept her voice low. Don't play dirty, Mr Liberty, it doesn't become you. In my experience, there's no other way to play. Her patience was waning. Look, Ned and I have been here for over a week and we still haven't had so much as a glimpse of what we came to see. We want to see the sights. We want to be tourists. We want to laze around eating overpriced locally made fudge and turn up our noses at tacky souvenirs and buy them all the same. We want to be day trippers trudging round in the rain. We want to... Then stay on at Mermaid House for a few more days as my guests and you can do all the day tripping you want to do in the area. She hesitated and in that instant knew that she had lost the upper hand in the argument. Gabriel leaned in towards her. Miss Costello, hear me out. I would very much like you to stay so that I can repay a little of your kindness. But you've done that already. You've paid me. It's not always about money. She smiled. Is this the same man who once said everything had a price? That everything was for sale? He shifted in his seat. Well, maybe I've... 
His words petered out. Maybe you've what? He drew his eyebrows together, screwed up his paper napkin, tossed it into his empty pudding bowl. Changed, he mumbled. It was difficult for her not to laugh at his discomfort. The poor man had come a long way in just one week. Well, she said, just so that we're clear on a few points, if, and I say if, we were to stay, there will be no more scrubbing and polishing? Agreed. No more, I said, as my guests. Don't you ever listen? Only if I like the sound of what's being suggested. And do you? In parts. But before I commit myself, I have to mull it over with the boss. She turned to her son. Ned, what do you think we should do? His eager face was answer enough. Chapter 35 At bedtime that night, Clara knew it was important to put the brakes on Ned's excitement by stressing that they would only be extending their debt stay by a few days. We'll be moving on first thing on Monday morning, Ned, she told him. There's so much more to see and do. Who knows what's round the corner for us? He nudged the book she was supposed to be reading to him. He hasn't been listening, she thought, when she eventually turned out his light and gave him one last kiss. He thinks two more days will turn into three, then four, then goodness knows how many. She sat at the narrow table with a glass of wine, a plate of crackers and a gooey wedge of camembert, enjoying the peace and quiet of her own company and wondering why she was so reluctant to hang around Mermaid House for much longer. It would still be a holiday for them, so what was the problem? Because it hadn't been part of her original plan. She cut into the soft cheese, picked the sticky lump off the knife, slipped it into her mouth and let its creamy smoothness melt on her tongue. Helping herself to another piece, she thought of her original plan, designed to make her and Ned feel like intrepid explorers. She had wanted to show Ned what an exciting world he lived in, so that he would grow up knowing that there were endless possibilities out there for him. Getting caught up in the lives of a handful of folk, however interesting, had never been a part of it. Once again, she heard Ron and Eileen extolling the virtues of their easy-come, easy-go lifestyle. Oh yes, we always start out with a plan, Ron had said. We like to tease ourselves with a map of intent. But half the fun in life is changing your mind and abandoning the rule book. Spontaneity is the name of the game. It was all very well, thought Clara, getting up and reaching for her writing things from the overhead locker. But sometimes spontaneity had a habit of getting above itself. If it wasn't too much of a paradox, spontaneity needed careful managing. Putting these thoughts aside, she settled down to write a letter to her parents in Australia, with a separate page enclosed for her brother Michael. And then she turned to the postcard she'd bought in Deaconsbridge that afternoon. It showed a colourful selection of mermaid shop signs. Dear Louise, on the verge of leaving Deaconsbridge, having completed our missionary work, the natives are almost civilised now. We're finally getting to see the local sites this weekend, the mermaids are a clue, and then we'll be moving on to who knows where. Further north, probably. I'll give you a ring sometime next week, just to check all is well. Lots of love, Clara and Ned. Now that she'd put down their departure date in writing, it made their leaving on Monday seem more real, which pleased Clara. And, as Louise would be the first to say, 
Seldom did Clara Costello change her mind or go back on her word. U-turns, according to the Clara Costello School of Management, were for backpedalling wimps. She tidied away the remains of the cheese and crackers, put her writing things away in their allocated place and made up a bed. As she pulled the duvet out of the cupboard beneath the seat and caught sight of her filthy jeans hanging on the hook of the shower door, she remembered that Gabriel had offered her the use of his washing machine before they left. She also remembered the envelope he had given her and which she had stuffed into her back pocket. Better remove it now before she forgot about it and threw it in the washing machine tomorrow morning. Ripping open the envelope, she extracted a slip of paper on which was written, Don't even think about turning this down. Paper clipped to it was a cheque. When she saw the amount, he had doubled the agreed sum. She shook her head, partly with disbelief, but also with affection. Silly old fool, she murmured. A rush of fondness for him brought tears to her eyes. She was deeply touched. Silly, silly, silly man. I was right all along, more money than sense. The next morning, Ned woke first. He got dressed without disturbing Clara, and she only realised he was up and about when he slipped under her duvet for a hug. Shall we ask Mr Liberty to come with us today, he asked, when he surfaced from her embrace. Do you think he'd want to? He's probably seen the mermaid cabin hundreds of times. But not with us. True. He smiled and slid out of the bed. Shall I go and ask him? How about some breakfast first? But he was already standing by the door, a hand working at the lock. I'll go on then, she gave in. But don't be surprised if he shouts at you for disturbing him. Yawning, she dragged herself reluctantly out of bed, wiped the condensation from the window above the table and watched Ned scamper across the courtyard. The back door opened before he reached it and she saw Gabriel staring down at his early morning caller. She strongly approved of Ned's suggestion and she hoped Gabriel would accept the invitation with good grace. It would be her way of thanking him for his more than generous cheque. Armed with a map and several guidebooks, Gabriel in the front with Clara and Ned in the back with Mermy, they embarked on a day's worth of sightseeing. But first they had to make a stop in town. Just let me pop into the bank, Clara said, switching off the engine and grabbing her bag. I need some cash. She also wanted to offload Gabriel's cheque. Inside the bank, and because it was only open for the morning on a Saturday, she joined a long queue that snaked its way round the small building. Minutes later, someone else joined the queue behind her. It was Archie. Hello, she said. Didn't think you bothered with banks. I thought you were strictly a cash-only man. Ah, well, my mattress gets uncomfortable if I put too much underneath it. It plays havoc with my back. Has the Commandant let you out for an hour or two? I've finished work now. Ned and I are officially on holiday again. We're taking Mr Liberty to see the Mermaid Cavern. Does that mean you'll be leaving us soon? Monday morning. He looked disappointed. That's a shame. The place won't be the same without you. I expect you'll manage pretty well. Someone at the front of the queue moved away and they inched forward. By the way, he said, I wanted to thank you for passing all that work in my direction. I really appreciate it. Oh, and you might like to know, I took your advice. I've got myself organised with a solicitor. The ball is definitely rolling, as they say. Another person at the head of the queue moved off and they shuffled forward again. I hope it works out for you, Archie. 
I'm sure it will, eventually. He shrugged. You're probably right. Anyway, cheer me up by promising you'll come and say goodbye before you and Ned disappear. Leave town without doing that and the sheriff and I will have to send a posse after you. It's a promise. The Mermaid Cavern was only a few miles from the centre of Deaconsbridge. The road climbed out of the town and in no time the landscape became markedly different. It was softer, greener, more curvaceous. This was limestone country, where the white peak reigned and the harsher, darker terrain of the high peak receded into the northern distance. According to the guidebooks, the Mermaid Cavern was often overlooked in favour of the bigger and more commercial show caves in nearby Castleton. Nonetheless, they agreed that it was of geological and historical interest and worth a visit. But the million-dollar question was, did the mermaid rock formation really look like a mermaid? Parking Winnie with another camper van, which had a Dutch number plate, and a people carrier containing two panting, slobbering Labradors, Clara asked Gabriel if he knew the answer. It's so long since I saw it, I can't remember, he said. How long ago? Time for her to have grown taller? It was 1963, if you must know. Oh, well, before I was born then, she leaned through to Ned. OK, Buster, you can unbuckle yourself now. We're all set. I came here with Anastasia. We went for a picnic afterwards, but it rained. It came down so hard, so suddenly, we had to shelter under a tree. She joked we would get struck by lightning and that we would both die and go to heaven. I told her I was already in heaven. Moved by the unexpected tenderness in his voice and the vivid picture his words had just painted, Clara turned slowly to look at him. And you've never been back? He gave her an odd look. What, to heaven? No, she smiled. Here. Wouldn't have been the same. Signposts directed them to a path that ran alongside a row of pretty cottages where yellow daffodils, purple crocuses and tiny blue cilias brightened small neat gardens. Twists of smoke plumed from chimneys and the crisp morning air was filled with the old-fashioned smell of burning coal. The entrance to the cave was reached by a series of steps carved into the rock. In places they were slippery from the rain that had fallen overnight. Clara held Ned's hand and was tempted to take Gabriel's too, but thought better of it. He would have his pride after all. And pride seemed to have influenced his appearance that day. If she wasn't mistaken, he had spruced himself up, even wearing a tie beneath his v-necked pullover, which didn't have any holes in it. They paid for their entrance tickets at the wooden booth and were shepherded through to a dimly lit tunnel, where they joined a group about to embark on the tour of what had once been an old lead mine. Fifteen minutes later, Clara was glad she'd bundled Ned up in his warmest clothes. It was bone-numbingly cold, with no escape from the icy damp that had already seeped through the thick soles of her shoes to gnaw at her toes. The tips of her ears and nose were tingling too, and the occasional splash of water from the low roof on her exposed skin made her shiver. As she listened to the guide and watched the direction of his torch, which he used to indicate points of interest, the flow stones, the stalactites and stalagmites, she thought of the harsh conditions in which those early miners had worked. The guide led them further into the series of caves, warning them to be careful and to hold on to the rail as they took the steep descent down towards the pool. 
Are we going to see the mermaid now? whispered Ned, squeezing her hand. Any minute. When they reached the bottom, a boat was waiting for them. They were helped into it and when all was secure, they moved smoothly through the water. It didn't seem very impressive at first. The ceiling of the cave was still quite low and though a few lights were fixed into the rock face, there wasn't much to see. But then they turned a corner and there was an from everyone in the boat. Even Gabriel, that stalwart of indifference, looked impressed. The vaulted roof of the cave soared above their heads and shimmering lights gave it a serene cathedral-like quality. People reached for their cameras, including Clara. After they'd taken their pictures, the guide took them on further. They came to a large rock that jutted out into the pool, steered round it, and there before them, Raised out of the water and subtly illuminated with softly glowing lamps was the mermaid. To Clara's surprise and delight, no leap of imagination or suspension of belief was needed to make out what she was. There was her tail, the forked end skimming the surface of the pool, and her curvy body reclined gracefully against another rock. For the benefit of those who enjoyed a good yarn, the guide told them how she came to be here. The story went that she had been a real live mermaid who had got lost at sea and had somehow found her way to the cavern. That she was so far inland was glossed over. She had liked it so much that she had made it her home and after wishing that she could stay here forever, she had been turned to stone to make wishes come true for others. As tales went, it was far-fetched and fanciful, but it satisfied Ned and as Clara drew him closer to her, she hoped he would never lose the sense of wonder she could see in his eyes. Everything was such a pleasure for him. New, exciting, full of mystery. Heaven forbid that life should ever become a chore for him. Just as she was thinking this, the guide pointed the beam of light from his torch at the small raised pool behind the mermaid. If you want her to grant you a wish, she said, you have to throw a coin into her pool. Judging from the number of coins already tossed into the crystal clear water, there had been plenty of people here before them who had gone along with the lark. Clara reached for her bag. Go on, Ned, she whispered. Make a wish. He took the tenpence piece from her. But what about you, Mummy? Don't you want to go? And Mr Liberty, you have to make a wish too. Gabriel pulled a face. I've never heard anything so absurd in all my life. A lot of stuff and nonsense. But then he smiled, reminding Clara of the big bad wolf in Little Red Riding Hood, and produced a pound coin from his pocket. Shall we make it a good one, Ned, eh? Come on, Miss Costello, get your money out. After your visit to the bank this morning, I know you can afford it. They waited for the rest of the group to throw their pennies and make their wishes, and then, at last, it was their turn. Don't say it out loud, Ned informed Clara. It won't come true if you do. Four years old, and how well-versed he was in these matters. And you mustn't tell anyone what you wished for, he said afterwards, as the guide steered the boat away, and they waved goodbye to the mermaid. Telling people what you wished for brings you bad luck, and we don't want that, do we, Mummy? No, Ned, we certainly don't. Clara's wish had been the same as it always was whenever irrational reliance on omens and charms was called for. She wanted Ned to be happy. But on this occasion she had tagged on an extra request, that the months ahead would be as enjoyable as the last two weeks had been.
She glanced at Gabriel's face in the subdued light. There was no knowing what he had wished for. Chapter 36 On Monday morning, as Clara unhooked Winnie from Mermaid House's electrical supply, Ned was anything but happy. He wanted to stay longer. The weekend had passed all too quickly, with most of it spent sightseeing. They had visited Peveril Castle, the Plague Village at Eam, Buxton, and even another cave, the Blue John Cavern in Castleton. But now they were preparing to leave. There's still more to see, Ned said, showing her the evidence to support his argument. He was pointing to a picture in one of their guidebooks that showed a place in Matlock Bath where they had cable cars to get you up and down the wooded hillside. Couldn't we go there today? Oh, please. She stopped what she was doing, sat down and pulled him onto her lap, knowing that if she wasn't careful, she'd have a tearful rebellion on her hands. She flipped through the pages of the book to the next section. And look, she said, even more to see. He stared at the picture of a traditional steamer crossing Lake Windermere, then at the one showing the Beatrix Potter Museum. Clara hoped that the sight of Peter Rabbit in his blue jacket nibbling a carrot would tempt Ned to get back on the road. Originally, the plan had been to use the Peak District as a stepping stone for Yorkshire before carrying on towards Berwick-on-Tweed and Scotland, where they would then work their way round the coast to the top, then drop down the west coast and keep on going till they hit Devon and Cornwall for the summer. But in bed last night, Clara had decided to change the route. The Lake District, which was full of all things cute and wonderful, would give her a better chance of luring Ned away from Deaconsbridge. She wasn't ready for what Ned said next. Couldn't we take Mr Liberty with us to see Peter Rabbit? He'd like that, wouldn't he? She put an arm round him. I'm not sure he's a Beatrix Potter kind of man, Ned. Besides, he has his friends and family here to think of. Ned shrugged away her arm and gazed at her intently. He doesn't have any friends. He told me. He said most of them are dead. I'm sure that was just another of his exaggerations. He's not that old. He is. He's going to be 80 on his next birthday. I'm sorry, Ned, but the answer's still no. Winnie is only big enough for the two of us. Imagine having a great big man like Mr Liberty sharing it with us. It was such an awesome prospect. Clara felt her face twitch with the threat of laughter. Keeping her expression under control, she added, and I bet he snores as loud as a giant. For the first time since getting out of bed that morning, Ned smiled. He'd be just like the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk. When he snored, it was so loud, all the buttons fell off Jack's coat. Clara giggled. That colourful little detail had been her father's. He was always contributing his own lines to the stories he read to Ned. Pepping it up was what he called it. She hugged Ned close. Well, we wouldn't want our buttons falling off whenever Mr Liberty had a nap. It would be too embarrassing for words. With the situation more or less under control, and Ned rounding up his cuddly toy collection, Clara carried on tidying the van. She was almost through with checking for potential rattles in the lockers and cupboards when there was a loud thump at the door. Time you were going, isn't it? It was Gabriel. Always a mistake to outstay your welcome, he growled, filling the doorway and blocking out the light. Remember that, Ned. When it's time to go, you go. No hanging around. 
Clara felt a wave of gratitude towards him for being his usual blunt self, for not making things worse for Ned by giving him a show of treacly affection. And a good morning to you, Mr Liberty. He stepped inside, looked at his watch. It's afternoon as near as damn it. Mr Liberty, guess where we're going, Ned chimed in. We're going to see Peter Rabbit and some big lakes and mountains. Do you want to see? He held up the guidebook that he and Clara had been reading earlier. Mummy says we'll go on a really old boat that has steam coming out of it. And there's a museum where we can see pencils being made. And when we've done... Sounds much too exhausting to me, Gabriel interrupted, scarcely glancing at what Ned was showing him. I think we're about done now, Clara said, shutting the last cupboard with a clunk. She took the book from Ned and stowed it in the rack with the rest of the maps and guides. If you'd like to say goodbye to Mr Liberty, you can climb into your seat and strap yourself in. But all at once, Ned didn't seem able to move from where he was standing. He put his hands behind his back and screwed his shoe into the floor. His eyes lowered to the level of Gabriel's knees, but not before Clara saw them fill. Then a little voice mumbled, Goodbye, and his lower lip wobbled, and she knew they were in real trouble. She moved towards him to put a comforting hand on his shoulder, but with a creak of bones, Gabriel got there before her. He bent down to Ned, gently picked him up with his big knuckled old hands and carried him outside. Staying where she was, Clara watched them go. This was their moment. For something to do, she repacked one of the cupboards and tried to ignore the large lump in her throat and the tears that were threatening to do their worst. Damn the man! Why and how had he got to them both? Finally, they were in their seats with the engine running and it really was time to go. Coming round to the driver's side of the van, Gabriel poked his head through the open window. You take good care of yourself, won't you, Miss Costello? Is that an order? If it needs be, yes. And you'll take care as well, won't you? Don't lose any of those instructions I spent ages writing for you. The dishwasher will need salt and rinse aid adding now and again, and you also have to... Yes, 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 Miss Costello. I have your infernal instructions sellotaped to the inside of the cupboard, just as you insisted. I'll have them tattooed on my chest if it will make you feel any better. She revved the engine and knocked the gear lever into first. Well, then, nothing more to say. Apart from thanking you for having us to stay, Ned and I have had a great time. We won't forget you in a hurry, that's for sure. Pah, you'll forget me so fast you won't even remember to send me a postcard. We will remember, cried Ned fiercely. We'll send you one every week. Goodbye, Mr Liberty. Despite everything, it's been a pleasure. His grizzled head was still close to the window, and seizing her chance, she leaned towards him and kissed his bristly cheek. What was that for? What do you think, you silly old fool? I never thought I'd say it, Miss Costello, but if I were a younger man... She laughed. If you were a younger man, I wouldn't have dared to kiss you. Oh, so old age makes me less of a sex object, does it? It makes you more accessible, you whinging old pain in the proverbial. He laughed too, then reached through the window, lifted her right hand off the steering wheel, raised it to his lips and very gently kissed it. I'm going to miss you, you delectable sharp-tongued girl. You've been a breath of fresh air for me. Goodbye now, drive safely, and if you're ever passing... But his voice trailed away. Touched, she said. We wouldn't dream of not calling in on you if we were in the area. You can take that as a promise, or maybe a threat. 
Steering Winnie out of the courtyard and tooting the horn, they gave one last wave to the solitary figure that stood in the shadow of the archway. He didn't linger. Neither Clara nor Ned spoke until they had reached the midway points down the long drive. Ned looked out of his window and said, Shall I wave one more time in case Mr Liberty's watching us from the tower? She patted his knee. Good idea. He kept on waving until the house was almost out of sight. When they were nearly at the end of the drive, they saw a car approaching. It was Jonah. Clara was glad to see him. She reckoned Gabriel could do with some company right now, even if it was only someone he could bully. She pulled over so that Jonah could come alongside the van. They wound down the windows at the same time. Clara said, How was it on the western front with your school trip? All quiet when we left it. Wet and cold, too. Too bad. So not at school today, shaping fertile young minds? No, we've broken up for the Easter holidays. I've come to see if Dad wants some shopping fetching. Where are you off to? The Lake District. You'll be pleased to know I've given up trying to marry your father and swindle him out of his vast fortune. You're leaving? Yes, Ned and I are moving on to Pastures New, where scheming gold diggers are given the proper respect they deserve. He smiled. Not hugely, but enough for her to realise how attractive he was. Yet what struck her most about him in that split second, as she took in the curve of his mouth and the way his hazel eyes caught the light as he looked up at her, was that everything about him was reminiscent of the young woman in the painting in his father's library. The likeness to his mother was unmistakable, and she wondered if he was aware of it, and whether or not Gabriel found it a comfort or a painful reminder of what he had lost. Casper will be relieved to hear that, he said good-humouredly. Scaring off a potential stepmother would have been a time-consuming business for him. I bet it would, but do me a favour, will you? Persevere with your father. The smile was gone and his face turned awkward and defensive. Annoyed that she seemed to have an uncanny knack for rubbing him up the wrong way, she said, I might have misjudged you when I first met you, but, well, a week with your father and I think I understand things better now but the smile didn't reappear as she'd hoped it might. I doubt that, he said, with feeling. Anyway, thanks for everything you've done for Dad. I'll do my best to carry on where you left off. That's if he'll let me. I find the shotgun approach usually works. You ram it up his nose and lay out your demands. Nothing to it. Goodbye. After sharing a week together, Clara and Ned Costello and Gabriel Liberty have forged strong attachments to each other. Through Val's diaries, Clara has more understanding of the underlying tensions between Gabriel and his children, and she finds her attitude to Jonah softening. As the time approaches for the adventurers to move on to pastures new, they realise how much they have enjoyed their time together and that saying goodbye will be tough. Can Clara rekindle Ned's excitement of exploring new places and get them happily back on the road? And how will Gabriel feel when he's alone again in Mermaid House? We'll find out more next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>